Hi, and welcome to The Week in Women. I'm your host, Jill Filipovich. The Week in Women is a rundown of the week's gender and women's rights news, and it's available for subscribers early. So head to jill.substack.com and sign up for a paid subscription if you want to hear The Week in Women before everyone else. I'm also adding transcripts to the news section of the show. So if you don't like to listen to podcasts, and yet sure you are, you can also get a basic rundown of the week's gender headlines in your inbox. And again, that will come early to paid subscribers. This week, we are talking about the ongoing Me Too trials, protests in Iran and Afghanistan for women's rights, and the state of abortion in the United States. I'm also in conversation with Richard Reeves, who is the author of a new book about boys and men and how they are falling behind. But first, the headlines. Three men accused of sexual assault as part of the Me Too movement are heading to court. Harvey Weinstein's criminal trial starts in Los Angeles on Monday, and he faces 11 charges, including rape, and sexual assault. Weinstein was already convicted in New York and sentenced to more than two decades behind bars, an outcome he is appealing. His legal team has also raised concerns about the living standards of his California jail cell, which they say is unhygienic and medieval. Also heading to trials but in civil court are Paul Haggis, the Oscar-winning director of the movie Crash, who also made a name for himself standing up against the Church of Scientology, and Oscar-winner actor Kevin Spacey. Both men have been accused of sexual wrongdoings, Haggis of sexually assaulting a woman in his industry, and Spacey of assaulting a 14-year-old boy, who is now an adult man, taking him to court. The trials are being seen as barometers for the progress of the Me Too movement. In Iran, 16-year-old Nika Shakurami was beaten to death by police forces during protests, her family says. The official story is that she fell off of a building. Her family says her injuries are more consistent with being struck repeatedly in the head. And another teenage girl, 16-year-old Serena Esmalzeda, was killed in the protests as well, reportedly beaten to death by Iranian security forces. According to Amnesty International, These girls are just two of the at least 23 children who have been killed by the Iranian authorities, as those authorities crack down on protesters asking for greater freedoms. The youngest in the amnesty report was an 11-year-old boy. And at least 144 protesters have been killed so far. The state has gone out of its way to cover up these deaths, often blaming them on accidents even while security forces continue to use extreme violence against protesters out in the open. Still, thousands of brave Iranians are returning to the streets day after day, demanding an end to mandatory hijab and an end to this tyrannical regime. Afghan women are protesting for their rights, too, after 53 students, most of them women, were killed in an attack on a learning center in Kabul. The attacker opened fire in the center before blowing himself up. The center largely serves ethnic Hazaras, a long-persecuted minority in Afghanistan, and protesters are standing up both for the rights and freedoms of ethnic minorities, but also for the rights of girls to attend school, something many have been banned from doing since the Taliban takeover. 
And of course, the medieval misogynists of the Taliban have not taken kindly to women protesting. They've beaten women and girls, verbally abused them, and fired warning shots to force them to disperse. While some men have joined women in the streets, the crowds are overwhelmingly female. University professor Zara Mozawi told Al Jazeera, I have a message for those Afghan men who sit at home and just watch women on the streets. How long will you remain silent in front of all these crimes and persecution against women? If today you choose to remain silent, tomorrow you may be faced with the same persecution. The South Korean president sailed to victory thanks to a campaign of rank anti-feminism intended to attract the votes of disaffected, conservative, and increasingly misogynist South Korean young men. Now in office, he has set in motion a plan to dismantle the nation's gender equality ministry. Doing so, he says, will help women's rights. Abolishing the gender ministry is about strengthening the protection of women, families, children, and the socially weak, he said. The country's liberals are pushing back and have vowed to not let him scrap the gender ministry without a fight. In U.S. abortion news, Planned Parenthood has announced that it's opening up a mobile abortion clinic in Illinois to serve women who live in states that ban the procedure. More so than ever before, people in the U.S. who need abortions are being forced to travel, often at great expense and for long distances. This new clinic, Planned Parenthood hopes, will increase access for women as close to home as legally possible. In Indiana, the state Supreme Court has said that the state may not enforce its abortion ban for now, while the court considers the ban's constitutionality. That's good news for people who need abortions in the state, and clinics have now resumed making appointments. But it has been a bit of whiplash, and this is one part of the problem with these slapped-together abortion bans, at least some of them are likely legally unsound, but as the courts deliberate, women and our futures are left in limbo. In Ohio, the state is appealing an order from a judge to block the implementation of their abortion ban, which, if it goes into effect, would criminalize abortion after six weeks of pregnancy. An appeals court will now review the decision and determine if the law can go into effect. And in New Hampshire, Don Bolduc, the Republican nominee for a Senate seat, says the standard practice of discarding some embryos after an in vitro fertilization procedure is, quote, disgusting, and suggests that he might support banning the practice. It's crucial to emphasize here that while this admission is startling, it's really not in any way out of line with what every single so-called pro-life organization in the U.S. supports. IVF is not currently on the top of the anti-abortion to-do list, but trust that if they continue to succeed in scaling back reproductive rights, they'll get to it. And now I'm really excited to welcome Richard Reeves to the show. Richard is a senior fellow in economic studies at Brookings and the author of the 2017 book, Dream Hoarders, how the American upper middle class is leaving everyone else in the dust why that is a problem, and what to do about it. His latest book is called Of Boys and Men, Why the Modern Male is Struggling, Why it Matters, and What to Do About It. And he's here to tell us about how men and boys are falling behind and why that should matter 
for women and feminists in particular. Richard, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Jill, for having me on. So I would love to get right into it. Why this book and why this book right now? Why this book on boys and men? Well, the anecdotal autobiographical reason is that I've raised three boys myself to adulthood in the UK and the US, and now all in, in their 20s. And I think all scholarship is a little bit autobiographical. Uh, it's just a question of whether we, whether we acknowledge it or not. But then in my day job, I was I've been working on issues of class inequality, economic mobility, race, uh, and so on. And I kept stumbling across a lot of gender gaps uh, that ran the other way to a lot of the intuitions. I kept finding big gender gaps in education, uh, pretty worrying trends in employment, and really troubling trends in the family too, which really made me think that for a lot of a lot of boys and men, and I, here I should emphasize, probably not the ones who are most like my own sons, but those who are from lower income backgrounds and especially black boys and men are really getting the sharp end of a lot of social, economic, and cultural changes right now. And that we really do need to pay more attention to them. And so as to why now, I think it's just, in some ways, these trends have been going on for long enough that we, we can't imagine they're just going to go away on their own. They're not, that it's not just a question of waiting them out. There seem to be some structural problems here facing boys and men. And that led me to think that we do need to take some policy solutions more seriously. And I'm a policy wonk by background uh, in terms of my day job. And so that felt like an area where maybe I, I could add some value. And I, I, I guess the last thing I'll say is I did feel there's, there's a lot of writing in the space and you've written a lot in the space, Jill, and you know a lot of the writing in this space, but I felt that it was quite long on lament and a bit short on solution. You know, some of the books in this space are like the sector equivalent of the book of lamentations and if they have solutions at all, it tends to be tapped on a little bit. And, and, I, and I really wanted to lean hard into so, sort of like, okay, assume there's a problem here, here are some things we can do about it and have an argument about solutions rather continue having an argument about whether there's really a problem here. And in the book, you're pretty critical of the left and the right alike when it comes to solving these problems. So you write, the left tells men, be more like your sister. The right says, be more like your father. Neither invocation is helpful. What's ne what is needed is a positive vision of masculinity that is compatible with gender equality. So this is, I know, a very large question, but what, what would that positive vision of masculinity look like? So something that isn't just the kind of restoration project of the right, nor the project of what you describe as the left, which is be more like women. What is a positive vision of masculinity? I like the restoration project was a good way to put it on the right, but the equivalent of the left is like the exorcism project. We just have to exercise all that masculinity out of you there, then you'd be okay. Then i.e. be more like your sister. So what would a positive vision of masculinity look like? Well, I think first of all, it would be masculine. And so I think there, that's where you might depart from some of more progressive views, because I think it has to begin with an understanding that on average, there are some differences and they're not trivial between the ways in which boys and men and, and girls and women are in the world. And to recognize those, and we can maybe get into some of the, what those are, but to say that there are some differences here and they are not just socialization. Some of them are, do come with our, our biology, but that doesn't mean that it's, there's something wrong with them. Doesn't mean that there's something better about them than there is about the equivalent feminine traits. And it doesn't mean that they're that consequential for probably most of the decisions you're going to make, but, but we're not going to ask you to stop being a boy or stop being a man. What we are going to ask you to do is be so in a way. That is absolutely inclusive of the idea of 
total equality for women and, and girls. That that's a full, based on full respect for and full support for the equal opportunities of, of women and girls, because that is the world that we're in now, and it's the world that we should we should all want. And so, it, I mean, it, it does mean that there's a recognition of the difference, but it absolutely continues to be on the side of the women and girls who are continuing to fight for equality in some areas, whilst recognizing there are some areas that boys and men are having problems too. And actually, rather than phrases like toxic masculinity or even traditional masculinity, I like to think about mature masculinity, because what that gets at is the sense that there are some ways in which we are, you know, we do need to be socialized. We do need culture to weigh in. And that's perhaps, perhaps particularly true of boys and men. I think that's probably true historically that culture has played a more important role in shaping masculinity. And so it's not just, it, this is absolutely not to say that nature is more important than nurture by any means. No one would claim that. It, ironically, acknowledging that there is some nature means we have to lean even harder on culture because culture is how we learn how to express or not express what are maybe some naturally occurring traits. I know you get into policy in quite a wide breadth in the book, but if you're making a list of your top policies that would both directly benefit men and also feed into this culture of mature masculinity that would help to shape boys and men in a way that both benefits them and benefits society as a whole, what is on your policy to-do list? Well, it's a, uh, there is a long, long list. And so you're quite right. Not just let me, let me spew through all of them. In fact, um, uh, Matthew Glacius reviewed the book and he, and he, he used the words earnest. And I think he might've said in places borderline banal. And I, and I thought that's great. That's exactly what we want here. Like this is an area that needs a bit of earnestness and risk a bit of banality just by kind of crunching through some of the areas that like vocational education, etc. But I would say two, two I highlight just in the spirit of like, where's the overlap that you've identified. And one is equal paternity and maternity leave. I think providing men with an independent right to time off to care for their children at any time in their child's life, that's on a essentially an equal footing to, to that of women. It's hugely important because it both allows and supports men in being more involved fathers, but it also sends an incredibly strong signal that through policy, that fathers matter and they matter as much as mothers. And that it is not just the job of mothers to raise children, it is equally the job of fathers, even if we end up doing it slightly different times in a different way. So that's incredibly important. And, and interestingly, since I finished the book, Finland has basically done that. So Finland now has 160 days of a paid leave for mothers and fathers independently, and only 63 days can be transferred. So most of it's not transferable. So it's basically attached to the mother and the father. I think that's incredibly important. And the second I would point to is a huge recruitment drive of male teachers. The teaching profession has become steadily more female as a share over time. It's now only 24% male down from 33% in the eighties. There's only one in 10 elementary school teachers are male, very few English teachers are male, and there are essentially almost no early years. Uh, educators. My son actually is, works in early years education and the number of men in early years education is about 3%. And to put that in perspective as a share of the profession, that's only half as many as there are women flying U.S. military planes. So we have at least twice as many women flying U.S. military jets as we do men teaching kindergarten. And I think that it's hugely important to get more men into those roles for all kinds of reasons. Like it's good for men because those are growing areas of the economy and you're more likely to get a job as a kindergarten teacher than as a coal miner for sure. And so just helping men adapt to the new economy. But I always think it's massively important to the signals we send to the next generation about roles, the roles of caring. If, if the only teachers, my kids have this experience, if the only teachers they see until they hit, almost till they hit high school are female. 
it's really hard to persuade them that caring and teaching and educating are jobs for men. And so I think that should be something that would both support gender equality in the broader, broader sense and also be good, specifically good for boys and men because having male teachers turns out to be quite important for boys' educational outcome. It does strike me that, for example, teaching has become a lower status profession, is a relatively underpaid profession as it's become more feminized, right? Are there examples, recent examples of jobs that were coded quite feminine that have shifted in the other direction and gained in pay and status? Yeah, I agree. It's very, it's a very complex question as to how far those trends are causal, like what's going on there in terms of pay and gender segregation and so on too. And I'd be very interested to see how, as other areas become much more female, like pharmacy, law, medicine, and so on, what happens to the relative pay levels in, in those areas. So there is some historical data that you're right, that more female professions that have very often become less well-paid, but whether the causal arrow still works strongly anymore, I just, I just don't know. But I, I mean, I, frankly, I just think it's absurd that K-12 teachers have barely had a pay rise 20 years anyway. And so I think that's a, that's a hugely important part of it. But the answer to your question is that are there, are there highly coded female professions that have swung? The answer is really no. I mean, to some extent, nursing, there's been a slight uptick in the chair of male nurses up to about 12% now, depending on which age group. You look at it's crept up over the last few decades, but but essentially the answer is no. And in fact, if anything, that we've seen even those professions that, that were coded female becoming more so. Teaching is one example. Even areas that were quite gender neutral before have swung very strongly female, like psychology, social work, for example. Psychology is a particularly striking example. Like only five percent psychologists under thirty are male, and psychology was a parity in nineteen eighty. So that's swung incredibly strongly. So so we're seeing you know, some swing quite female, some that were already female swing more female. And then of course, a bunch of areas which were previously very male swinging towards parity and sometimes beyond, especially in the, in the profession. But then in some areas that are still quite male coded, where there's a lot further to go, like tech and engineering is doing a bit better, but where the, the progress has been much, much slower. So, but to the extent that we've seen gender desegregation in the labor market, it has basically been one way. It's been women going into traditionally male professions and almost nothing the other way around. And I think that's a profound problem for men because those are growth areas, a profound problem for society because we don't want to send such strong messages about what their gendered roles. And it's really bad news for the boys and men using those services, honestly. I mean, like there were very few male special needs teachers, but most kids going to special needs are male. Most substance abuse counselors are women, but most people suffering from substance are, are male. And I don't know about people turning to mental health professionals, but I'm going to bet that it's more than 5% of them are male. And so we really want to worry about having such strongly gendered professions, especially when they are airing professions, because by definition, they're going to be airing probably for women and men. Social care is another great example that's incredibly gendered. So this to me feels like the story of feminism. Women's roles have radically expanded in the workplace, even in terms of our physical presentation, right? how short women cut our hair, we wear pants as well as skirts. Feels like for women, the world has gotten much bigger and opportunities have really grown, whereas men have stayed stuck in this old version of masculinity, but aren't moving into many of these growth areas, often to their own economic detriment. And you write in the book that the problem with men is typically framed as a problem of men. It is men who must be fixed one man or boy at a time. This individualist approach is wrong. And as a woman in my 30s who spent my entire 20s being told to like 
lean in. <laughs> you know, in, I think women have gotten the individual invocation to do more. And yes, there have been policy changes and legal changes that would allow us to do more and have helped us to do more. But as far as I can tell, not policy-wise at the expense of men, if that makes sense. So you're right that this is not a mass psychological breakdown, but a, but a deep a deep structural change. But isn't it also kind of a problem with how men and boys understand their role? Yes, it's obviously both. I mean, I would say that my understanding of the debates within feminism, and here I'm very conscious that this is an area you know much more about than I do here, but is that actually it was a real debate between sort of lean-in feminism, if you like, or so-called girl boss feminism, and the form of feminism really did emphasize the structural barriers. And those structures could be economic, they could also be cultural, but that there was, there was a lot of, there are a lot of barriers that had to be lowered before it was even reasonable to say to women, you go girl, you lean in, right? And that those structural problems needed to be needed to be tackled as well. Now, I think there are surely there were moments where it was, where far too much emphasis was put on the individual. Remember the whole power pose thing, which I think has now been properly debunked. But it's like the way you stood, right? You just stood stood in a certain way. I can't even remember what it was. And thank God we're not on video, so even if I'm acting it out, people don't know. But it was like hands on hips and like. And all this empowerment stuff. I mean, this whole thing about female, you know, you know assertiveness training was a really big thing. As you know, in the ages, but that kind of went away, thank God, because it did put all the emphasis on the individual. It, like, it basically said to women, like, here, here are these structures in society, but you, you know, if you've got, if you've got what it takes, you can make it profoundly wrong. Um, and I think we did rebalance towards more structural changes and we throw policy at it. We did throw like huge efforts at getting, you know, we didn't just say to women, go and be a scientist. We threw STEM scholarships and we threw, you know, social media campaigns and social marketing campaigns. We did a lot. We didn't just say women, you can be scientists. We did a huge amount to try and break down the barriers to say, and now actually in the U S there are most U S scientists now are women, which is an incredible achievement just in a short space of time. It's all I'm saying is to do the same for men. And there's a bit of a tendency. I think to, to fall into some of the same traps, which is to individualize the problem, to just say, well, if these men would just get over themselves and get past the misogyny and get past the, you know, then, then the world would be there for them. Like what's wrong with, why don't they want to be early years teachers? Well, one of my sons is an early years teacher and like, it's tough. It's tough. You have to face, you have to face a huge amount of stigma and cultural barriers. And when it, when a profession is that gendered, it's just not good enough to point at the individuals and say, well, it's their fault. We have to help. So I agree that it's a bit of both, but one of the things I was really against to, to emphasize is there are also structural challenges facing boys and men, including cultural ones. And that's the collective responsibility. There's a little bit too much finger pointing and not quite enough helping hands. And I know that's hard for people to think about in relation to boys and men, but we, we don't want to make the mistake that was made, being made so often to go on the right of saying this is just an individual problem. By the way, the right are doing it too. The right are just saying just man up. Right. This is a different version of the individualization, but, but both sides, and, th and this is a rare occasion where both sides are failing, I think, to see structural problems. So I'd love to talk a little bit more about some of those hands up. You mentioned earlier in our conversation, a big drive for more male educators, for initiatives that would help men be more involved fathers. I'm going to link to your Atlantic piece, the excerpt of the book about redshirting boys, because I thought that was really interesting and really powerful. But men are also having kind of a major mental health crisis, right? Men have higher rates of drug abuse, higher rates of suicide than women. Men, as you write in the book, are struggling in so many different ways. So what are some of the policy solutions that would help essentially that kind of mental and emotional condition of men that results from this profound 
cultural and economic dislocation? Well, I think the one obvious answer is, in a sense, to connect with where we were before, is about the provision of mental health services to, to men, uh, including by men. I think it's, it's why it's good to have male counselors and psychologists and substance abuse counselors, by the way. And, and it's also an argument for, and it's a good, a good argument for people maybe on the left, which is for expanding health insurance coverage, because men are less likely to have health insurance than women. They're at greater risk of being uninsured. And so it's, they're less likely to be able to get access to that. But you're quite right that men are about three times higher risk of suicide or any of the deaths of despair from drug, drug overdoses, alcohol, and so on. But I tend to see those, they're problems in their own right, which should be addressed. But I also see them as expressions of these other problems that we've been talking about in employment, in the family, and just generally in trouble. And the way I think about this is that to some extent, it is helpful to have social, some social scripts, right? They shouldn't be, you're not stuck with them, but, but actually having a sense of like, what's the script to follow here? And we sort of tore up the old female script, thank God, and replaced it with a new, very empirical about education and financial independence and professional success. And that's been incredibly positive and powerful. We also tore up the old male script about being a breadwinner and sole provider and protector, but we didn't really replace it. And so I think in that sort of scriptlessness is where a lot of, uh, a lot of men, especially those with less economic power have fallen and they end up less anchored. They end up, um, not very anchored to family or community or in some cases to employment. And that's the cause of a lot of these problems. So it strikes me that, you know, men, I think it's like 70% of opioid deaths are male, but one of the reasons why the death rate is so much higher opioid users, as opposed to other drug users is that they're on their own. They, they take them on their own and they're inside. So no one's there to resuscitate them. And that strikes me as an incredibly important data point. And so what's happening, I think, and is the, the sense of cultural redundancy that many men feel is it's at the root of many of these mental health problems we're seeing. There are different mental health problems facing women and girls, which, which are in my, in my, my view, at least as important, but we do see these kind of depths of despair and very high, very high and rapidly rising suicide rates, especially among young and middle-aged men. And we should really be looking at the causes, which is the sense of dislocation that many men are feeling. In the book, you write about how essentially masculinity functions differently for black boys in men than it does for white boys and men. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, I should say, yeah, a personal note here too, is that I've been very influenced by my godson, Dwight, who's black and from, from Baltimore. And because obviously I've been, <laughs> I'm a white British guy. So I've really come to this, you know, it's been very eye-opening for me. But I think if you take this whole idea of intersectionality seriously from Kimberly Crenshaw, what it means is you look at how gender and race and class and so on play out differently in different contexts. And, and I think it's, it's pretty clear to me that when we look at the experience of black boys and men in particular, that that they're the fact that they're boys and men, the fact that they're male is is not only not an advantage, it's actually a disadvantage. It's kind of weaponized against them, certainly in the criminal justice system, certain terms of how people feel. A lot of implicit bias tests will show that people are kind of seeing black men as more threatening. The black the behavior of black men is more pathologized and so on to the discrimination they face in institutions. All of which leads to some really some very, very strong gender gaps. I mean, pretty much every gender gap you want to look at what, that, that favors women and girls is much bigger between black women and, and black men. So black women twice as likely to get a college degree as black men, for example. And there's a whole wealth of statistics behind all this. And so I think it, it, it's good for us, I think, to have to think differently, but it's relatively clear to me that, that black men face a form of sort of gendered racism or even a form of sexism. They, they face a kind of sexism through the lens of race. And as a result of which black boys and men are the ones who are really at the sharpest events of, of many of these trends. I'm thrilled there's a new commission on the social status of black boys and men that was established 
few years ago. Let's see where that goes. But if you, if we want to look at unequivocal evidence that there are areas boys and men are struggling, then we only have to look at the experience of black boys and men in the U.S. today. You talk in the book about the political stalemate between left and right. You're right. Despite both left and right saying they care about men, they have very different visions of how to solve the problem. And most people aren't coming to the table with much in the way of policy. How do you break through this really entrenched stalemate about who men should even be in the world that divides left from right? I think part of it is just by having having these conversations in public. I mean, one of the reasons I ended up writing the book was because lots of people were having this conversation prior, but then not really having it in public. And that was especially true on the left. Or if they're having it on the right, it was in very, you know, it was really in a grievance way. It was really just on the right, sort of pointing your finger at feminism and the women's movement. I mean, Josh Hawley has really, really pushed hard on this whole idea that men are in trouble because the left hate them. And so I think part of like. Honestly, part of the motivation for writing this book was just to do it rather than talk about it, rather than just talk about how difficult it is in this, in this cultural environment is to, well, okay, well, why don't you just do it? <laughs> let's, let's talk about some solutions and let's, let's get into the subject in a way that is, tries to just call it, you know, in a way that we see, we see it to, in a sense, make it more of a normal problem, right? Because I think one, one of the problems now is it's so freighted. It's so, there's such great sensitivity about it that it's, you can't, you can't approach it as a normal problem and just say, oh, that's a problem. Look, look at these suicide rates. Look at look at how badly a lot of these boys are doing in school. Well, that's a problem. Should we try and do something about that? And just sort of make it, make it, I mean, use Matt's phrase again, but a bit banal, right? Make it a little bit dark, more of like a tractable policy problem. That would then mean that the White House Gender Policy Council could look at some of these issues facing boys and men without being immediately attacked as betraying the feminist agenda, which no one really seriously thinks. It's just crap. And so I think, honestly, it's just by, by doing it and by talking about it, and kind of moving on it and just, you know, as ordinary citizens, just refusing the zero sum framing, right? Just refusing to say that you can't care about boys and men and, you know, without giving up all your feminist credentials or vice versa. So it's partly just about getting on with it. Yeah, we're all, we're all, a lot of us are raising boys. A lot of us are in relationships. A lot of us are in workplaces. So I think part of it is just, just uh, in a sense, it's just refusing the bullshit that, that is being delivered to us from both sides and from higher up right now. They're dug in. Clearly through the midterms, that'd be true. There's, but yeah, things will have to get better. They, they can't, on, the, on this issue in particular, I don't see they can get any worse in terms of how dug in both sides are. Wonderful. Richard, thank you so much. The book is Of Boys and Men, Why the Modern Male is Struggling, Why It Matters, and What to Do About It by Richard V. Reeves. Thanks, Richard. Thank you, Joe. And that's it for The Week in Women. Thank you, as always, for listening. Remember, if you subscribe to jill.substack.com, you get the week in women before everyone else. If you're enjoying the show, I am always grateful if you rate, review, and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. Big thanks this week to Tamar Eisen, who assisted in research for this show. And stay tuned for the next couple of weeks because I'm going to be introducing some new features to The Week in Women, and I think you'll find them interesting and exciting. So stay tuned, and I'll see you next week. Bye.